From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I need to get my mom's recipes written down. This is crazy. I don't know how to make her meatballs. I don't know how to make her pasta. These are our family heirlooms. These are important things that we want to keep forever. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Anna Francis Goss. Anna is the author of Heirloom Kitchen, Heritage Recipes and Family Stories from the Tables of Immigrant Women. And Anna writes in the book that this story begins, as many great ones do, with a meatball, specifically her mother's meatballs. So Anna was born in Italy and grew up in the United States. And after going to culinary school and working for major food companies, she realized she didn't know how to make her mother's meatballs, a recipe that wasn't written down, but was held in her mother's memory. And that realization launched a multi-year project, chronicling the stories and recipes of immigrant women. So in today's show, we're super excited to talk with Anna about the process of joining 45 women in their kitchens to learn their recipes and their family stories, about what led her to food and food media in the first place, and why she believes America is less of a melting pot and more of a stained glass. Plus, we're stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack, and we've got two recipes from Heirloom Kitchen, Tina's Chinese New Year dumplings and Anna's mother Gina's arancini. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Anna Francis Gass joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Anna. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. And we're here to talk about your cookbook, Heirloom Kitchen, yes. Heritage Recipes and Family Stories from the Tables of Immigrant Women. But I want to start first by talking about you. So food was not originally your career path. No. You were sort of on a different path. So I want to talk about how you sort of were drawn to food and what sort of interested you in food and how you got to where you are today. Were you interested in food as a kid? Yes. I mean, I definitely come from what we now call a foodie family, which at that point was just eating. You know, there was no like title for food uh, enjoyment. But no, I mean, I grew up in a family, as I talk about in the book, my mother's an immigrant from Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, Italians are the type that for breakfast, you're discussing what you're going to have for lunch. And then at lunch, you're figuring out what you're eating for dinner. So it's that continuation of what's going to be the next thing that I eat. So yeah, I mean, I definitely feel that my life has always revolved around food. I think there's a lot of people in my position because food being an economic avenue in so many different paths yeah. is relatively new. I mean, you know, you have a podcast about food. Right. Mag- you know, when sure. I was kind of coming up thinking about careers, that wasn't definitely something that my guidance counselor discussed. Yeah. You know, well, what about food? Right. Um, and I think now they probably do. But no, I mean, I was in a very, you know, I would say traditional trajectory. I went to college. I studied really hard. I figured I liked people. I enjoyed talking that, you know, psychology was for me. Okay. And after undergrad, I thought I would continue. And then I figured, you know what? Let me take a break. I want to see if I can stay in Manhattan and just enjoy having a paycheck coming in. Yeah. So I took a job um, with an insurance company, which sounds strange, but at that time it was very on trend for business type companies to hire liberal arts majors. Okay. So I got a job that was pretty well paid. Um, I felt really good about myself, but you know, after time, I, it was kind of trying to fit into a mold that wasn't really me. 
And I continued on that. I, I went from insurance to mortgages, same thing. Very good. I was successful, but I don't know that I felt like I was passionate about it. Sure. So then, you know, fast forward, I got married. I had kids. I had my second daughter and I, what I call my, um, midlife crisis early. Okay. Because I said, you know what? I'm just not happy with my job. I'm juggling career and children and for what? And so I took a pause and then my father is the one that said, you know what? You really love food. Maybe you should go into a career in food. And Food Network was exploding. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, we were talking about with Rachel and gourmet had always been such a big part of my life too. And reading that magazine and enjoying it and just also just the cerebral part of food and how you can think about food on a philosophical level. I loved that. So I said, okay, I'm not going to be a chef, but maybe I could do something with food media. Um, not TV, but I do love to write. I was a journalism minor and had this foodie family. So it kind of made sense. And I went to FCI in Manhattan and that led me with a lot of different steps to where I am today. Was food sort of there or did it take someone like your father telling you this could be a career for you? Like it was an interest for you, but it sort of seems like it was it a was, light bulb moment. It was a light bulb moment because it was like unconscious almost. Okay. But then when I started thinking about it, I'm like, wow, I'm at my desk. I'm supposed to be working, but I'm searching recipes online. Yeah, right. <laughs> Using the printer to it's figure out what I'm having to din- for dinner. <laughs> right. Um Sorry, insurance company I used to work for. for, What do they call it? Like time theft? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was a time thief. Um, but no, it was always for food. And it's funny, but, and it's kind of weird things you remember. But when I first graduated and I had this apartment and I was broke and I, you know, couldn't go out to eat, I would come home and turn on Rachel Ray's 30 minute meals. And I very clearly remember the episode where she makes calzones and she says, all you need to do is go to your local pizzeria and buy a dough for one dollar. <laughs> and she and I was literally sitting there with a pen and paper, ran downstairs to the local pizzeria yeah. and created this beautiful calzone. I was like, I'm a chef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Did you ever doubt yourself when you made that career switch? Like leave your, your, you know, well-paying job to go to culinary school. Yeah. I mean, it's, I loved the fact that I went to culinary school. I know there's many, many famous chefs and media professionals that never did. It's absolutely the foundation for me. And I credit French Culinary Institute, now ICC, with mm-hmm. helping me because food media in a lot of ways is very celebrity now. You know, you don't just get into a magazine. You don't just start writing, you know, for Bone App. Right. You really have to be good and you have to get your foot in the door. And they hooked me up with Martha Stewart Living and then uh, Food 52. And that's because they got me those interviews. So I feel like I have this food pedigree because of the fact that they got open those doors for me. And I, it's even harder to get in those doors now. Yeah. But when I did, um, it was already pretty difficult and it was a select group. But, you know, I went and I, you know, worked my tail off, which is what you do. You learn how to write about food intelligently and you go from there. And you started as a recipe tester with Martha Stewart? Yeah. So, I mean, it was an accident. I started as an intern there. It, okay. Like my first day, it was like, um, we need the the cookbooks alphabetized. Okay. That's your job. Sure. Yeah. We've <laughs> so, all been there. Yeah. And then it was, oh, 
the recipe freelance test, the recipe tester freelancer that was supposed to come in today and make a hundred pounds of a hundred pounds of gingerbread for our Christmas issue is sick. So you're making gingerbread today. Yeah. But it's those little opportunities where you do a good job. True story. The next day, someone was panically calling me from the test kitchen. How did you make that gingerbread? We remade it. The color's different. Martha loves yours. What are we doing wrong? That's awesome. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is amazing. They yeah. like my gingerbread. Right. <laughs> so, but it's, it's little moments like that, right? And the recipe testing in the kitchen at Martha was so scientific and exact that I was really drawn to it. Yeah. I realized that, you know, MSLO does not print something if it's not perfect. Yeah. And I admired that and I respected that because, I mean, I had cooked many things, either from the internet or even cookbooks that were clearly not tested. And to be in a place where it was so thoughtful and important and there was such a high bar made me think, wow, this is such a distinguished career. And I really loved it. I loved the science of it, the exactness of it, and being a part of that. So you're working as a recipe tester for a while, and then you start working on this blog, Mm -hmm. which eventually sort of morphs into the cookbook we're here to talk about today. Yeah. Tell me what inspired you to start that blog. So after I had my third child, so I think me having kids just kind of creates these moments where I think about things clearly. Okay. So thanks to my kids. (laughs) Yeah. No. So after my third child was born, my son, I had kind of taken a step back. I was only really doing freelance work. I wasn't going into the city. Um, I just couldn't do it. So I'm home and I'm recipe testing here and there from my house, but I just kind of thought I need a pet project. And I realized I didn't have any of my mother's recipes written down. So my mother is an immigrant from Italy. Right. And she is an amazing cook. Um, since she came to the U.S., she always had jobs in food. She worked at a donut shop. Uh-huh. Uh, she was making donuts and muffins. And then she went on to work at a banquet facility. She was like their banquet chef. So my mom's always had a hand in food. And at home, it was always the food of my grandparents. Sure. So the first simple thing was I need to get my mom's recipes written down. This is crazy. I don't know how to make her meatballs. I don't know how to make her pasta. She makes them for us on Sunday, but we need them written down. I have two daughters and actually my son loves to cook too. Mm -hmm. My sister has kids. These are our family heirlooms. These are important things that we want to keep forever. And I do believe that food is your culture and your traditions are all wrapped in. So we got them written down. Then I had my Let's call it my Oprah aha moment. Okay. <laughs> when I thought, hey, I could provide a service to my friends. Yeah. I did go to New York University. I ended up creating this network of friends who happen to have all parents from other places or, you know, second generation, whatever. Sure. But there was always that lineage. You know, there's always someone here that somebody's grandparent or parent came from somewhere else. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get to learn amazing recipes. All I need to do is get into these people's kitchen. Right. So I sent out an email. I think it was to 25 people and said, I'm starting a blog, Anna's Heirloom Kitchen, and I'd like you to get involved. I would like to come to your mother's house, learn how to make her recipes. I'm going to write them down. You're going to love me. And (laughs) for me, selfishly, I get to learn how to make authentic Korean barbecue or, you know, whatever it might be. So... I thought, okay, you know, let's see what happens. Everyone responded. And their moms were in it too because they all kind of just realized, you're right. We don't have any of this stuff written down. I don't know how to make my mom's noodles. I don't know how to do this. And um, the mothers were also just excited to have someone care. 
Yeah. And then you come in and you're a trained recipe tester. You've gone to culinary school. And most of these women, if not all of them, are not cooking from recipes or cookbooks. No. There's a few mentions, I think, of of women who brought cookbooks with them. But mm-hmm. for the most part, they're cooking by memory and by mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. What was that process like of then working with them to sort of translate these to the page? It was a true test of my skills. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and, but, you know... um, it's just funny how life works. It's kind of like everything I did led me right to this project. It was working in a kitchen where that standard was so high. And I yeah. really learned how to pay attention because, you know, in a fast paced test kitchen, people don't have time to explain things three times. Right. You know, they're going to get annoyed. So you need to listen and pay attention. So it was, okay, we're going to take this slow. I'm going to watch you. And that's the other thing. I cooked with all the women in this book. It wasn't email over the phone. It was, I literally went to their kitchen and watched them because you have to. On the phone, they forget. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, even sometimes in person, they forget. Sure. But, you know, we got through it. And I think because they were so in, so to speak, and really admired what I was doing, they were like, okay, let me slow down. You're right. I do do it this way. And this is why. And things I don't think they'd even thought about, they finally realized all right, you're right. So it'd be like, okay, you're saying a handful, come over here. And then putting that handful, is it a half a cup? Is it a cup? Right. And they did it. One woman did not have measuring cups. So I started bringing, (laughs) I brought, I start, I scales, measuring cups, everything. Yeah. One woman found like a really dusty one. Right. We got through it, but no, they don't need them, but I did. Or there's things that are used as measuring cups that are not a standard measuring cup. A hundred percent. That yes. cup ended up getting poured into the a flower measure. cup. Yeah. <laughs> it's not actually a, a one cup scoop. Did that process make you think about the forgiveness of recipes? I think we get so caught up in particularly home cooks and like wanting to follow a recipe to a T and being yeah. sort of unafraid to be experimental or flexible. But working with all of these women who are cooking just by hand, mm-hmm. what, what impact did that have on you on how you think about recipes? Okay. Well, there's an interesting thing. Even though when you're cooking with your grandmother, it seems so haphazard. Uh-huh. It really isn't. Yeah. It's always three pinches of salt. Sure. It's always two handfuls of breadcrumb. So even though you don't think that they have any idea what they're doing, right. they really do. And that's why it tastes the same every time. So... I would say for this cookbook, I did become very rigid because I wanted to get it right. Yeah. I didn't want the pasticcio that you can find on the internet. I mean, Ina Garten has a delicious recipe for pasticcio, but I didn't want hers. I wanted Nellie's recipe for pasticcio. Yeah. Because when Nellie's kids make that recipe, I want them to say, yeah, this tastes like my mother's. It's got the right blend of cinnamon. It's got, you know, just the right amount of meat to pasta ratio. So I was very, very rigid. What I would say to the person buying the book, though, is this. I want you to start cooking your mom's recipes. That's what I really want. And by any chance, by, you know, sad circumstance that your mother or grandmother has already passed and you didn't get the recipes written down, but your mother made a great pasticcio, use Nellie's to start and then fiddle from there because you absolutely can. Maybe your mother's, maybe your grandfather was allergic to cinnamon. So it got omitted. And that's how these recipes were created. Um, the Cuban woman, it's really funny because she purees her sofrito for the beans. And, you know, I had done some research online. I said, Angela, why do you puree it? Most Cubans will use a mortar and pestle or whatever, just kind of grind it up. She's like, 
because my husband hates green peppers. And if I didn't puree it, he wouldn't eat it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but right. it was delicious. Right. So it's, but it, there were so many recipes like that. Yeah. So I guess I don't really answer your question, but no, you don't have to be rigid with a recipe. I just was in, because this book is really in honor of the women that contributed. Sure. And to that note, you also, beyond the recipes, include their stories mm-hmm. and a lot of information about um, them and their lives. Right. How did you decide to sort of structure the book in the way that you did by including their recipes as well as their stories? It, it was a happy accident. When I was cooking with the first person after my mom, it was the woman I mentioned, Nellie from Greece. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing I definitely realized when you're cooking with people in a, in a kitchen, like not in a restaurant, in a, in their house, it's incredibly intimate. Yeah. And you become friendly really fast. Sure. And you're in there and you're kind of hustling around in the kitchen and I'm writing all this stuff down, but you're talking and you're sharing and their inhibitions have really just kind of melted away. And just by accident, I said, Nellie, um, why'd you come to the U.S.? You know, why? You're not 18 years old, you know, uh-huh. newly married. And she just told me her beautiful immigration story. And I'm scribbling the recipe on one side of the notebook and I'm flipping to find a a blank sheet to write her story down because I'm like, there's something here. This is just as important as the food. And, you know, I'm a child of an immigrant. I'm also an immigrant. I was one when I came. Okay. My passport picture is in the book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, pretty much I was an American kid and I had an immigrant mother and I started reflecting on that, like growing up with a mom with an accent, growing up with a mother that got a driver's license as an adult, um, learned English, all these things. So as a kid, I'm just like, whatever. But right. as an adult, now hearing these stories, being a mother myself, it made me appreciate my mother so much more and these women. So that became part of the process too. I would go get the recipes, but then I would also get the stories. So fast forward, time to pitch the cookbook. Uh-huh. And the book is HarperCollins. I love them. Um, they just got it. Uh, my editor, Christina, just really understood. But when I sat down, I said, look, I understand I'm here p- pitching a cookbook. However, this isn't just a cookbook. I want this to be the kind of cookbook that people break their I'm not buying any more cookbooks for yeah, rule for. Sure. Which I also have that rule. rule. <laughs> it's a silly rule, but a lot of people say, not one more, and then I they'll know. come to me. And it's the best compliment. When someone says, I yeah. broke my no more cookbook rule for this book – you could not say anything nicer to me because it's yeah. exactly was my intention. I wanted a book that had more to it. Sure. So you're going to learn how to make Nellie's Spanikopita, but you're also going to learn all about why Nellie came. And you're going to find threads in there that reflect someone in your life. And, you know, her story was pretty traditional, much like my mom's, but there were other stories that blew my hair back. And I just couldn't believe what some of these women went through. And... um This is my love letter to them. This is my tribute to all the mothers that came over here and the fathers too, because it was not easy. Yeah. Were you thinking about the political climate when you were putting this book together? Unfortunately, we're in a time when immigrants are often maligned in the media and politics. So Um, I wish I had had a crystal ball. I mean, I started this project in 2014. uh Um, I think we were kind of still in a bliss state maybe. I I don't know how to really put it, but in a state where we just didn't think things were maybe the way they really truly are, and now things are coming to light. Yeah. Um, So no, this was absolutely not a political statement. And I'd like to say that it still isn't because of the fact that I truly feel that this book is a celebration. And I don't care what you believe politically, you need to acknowledge 
if you have common sense, <laughs> that we all came from someone out or somewhere else. I mean, of course, unless you're Native American, sure. somebody in your family got on a boat, got on a plane, however it might be, to come to the U.S. for a better life. And I think this book is just another testament to that. And let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate the fact that, you know, as I'm walking to your station here, how many restaurants did I pass that were Mexican, Vietnamese, Italian, whatever it might be, there is a reason it's like that here. And that we have this amazing diverse food culture, that we have this amazing um blend of people. So let's just be happy about it. Yeah. That's what I say. Yeah. Namaste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a great quote in the beginning of the book from one of the women you cooked with where she says, she talks about the concept of America being a melting pot. And so mm-hmm. she actually thinks about it more as a, like a stained glass piece of art. Can you talk about why, like what she meant by that quote, sort of the symbolism right. there? So I think it's funny when you're in your, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your thing, right? You're like, so this is, this was my thing and I'm, and I'm, going through the motions and I'm meeting with these women. And then, like I told you, I'm standing in a kitchen and my hair is like blown back, literally, because she said to me, ah, melting pot, melting pot, you know, because we're talking about melting pot, because that's what we say about the U.S. And she's right. like, it's not a melting pot. It's a stained glass window. She said, we all come here, we get along, we fit together, but we shine on our own. And I thought, oh my God. That is so profound. And she just kind of said it like she was telling me the weather. But when I really started thinking about it, I said, that's exactly right. That's why you can go to the restaurants that you do. And then I started thinking even farther back. Okay, forget restaurants. My mom, right, comes here from from Italy. Mm -hmm. She didn't start cooking, I don't even know, steak and potatoes, meatloaves, whatever we even consider American food, which I don't even know if it exists. But she said... I'm still going to make meatballs. I'm still going to make pasta and I'm still going to cook all the dishes I learned in Italy and I'm going to figure out how to do it here. So my mom assimilated. She learned the language, became a citizen, got a license, lived an American life. But when she came home, her kitchen was Italy and all these women did exactly the same thing. And my theory is that made them safe. Yeah. You go out and, you know, and, and I lived it. I lived with a parent with an accent. And it's not always easy. You have to go to your job. You have to prove yourself. And you're always in that position where you're just maybe not seen exactly like the other Americans. Not bad or good, just the way it is. But when you go home, you create your own little world. And they all did it. They came home and they made, you know, their Korean stir fry just the way their mothers did. They came home, they made their Greek food, whatever it was, that's what they ate at home. Sure. But that didn't stop you from asking your mom to make you frozen chicken pot pies when you <laughs> were younger. you were going to bring it up. <laughs> I had yeah. to. Yeah. It, it's so funny. And, you know, even like adding that story in, but when I would tell other people that story, they're like, oh yeah, my mom did the same thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, processed, easy, and especially... um I would say from like the 50s on, now we're on this new like no process movement, which is great, but we all love the processed food. Like hand me a bag of Doritos when I was a kid. Now it's like, you know, you like cross your fingers in front of a bag of Doritos. (laughs) Right. But we love that stuff. And you know, all I wanted was a Marie Calendar's pot pie. Yeah. And it just wasn't for her. No matter that it was, you know, much easier. Right. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Anna Francis Gass, author of Heirloom Kitchen. 
Next week is the 50th episode of Salt and Spine. Wow, in just over a year since we have launched, I have absolutely loved telling the stories behind cookbooks by sitting down with dozens of your and my favorite cookbook authors. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Alison Roman and today's guest, Anna Francis Goss, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we're publishing recipes and author excerpts, holding cookbook giveaways, and so much more. In fact, this podcast is only possible because of listeners like you. And so to celebrate our 50th episode, we're running a special promotion. If you become a sponsor of Salt and Spine before then, you'll be entered into a contest to win one of several cookbooks from our recent guests. That's in addition to other perks like Salt and Spine bookmarks, t-shirts, and more. You can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt a-n-d spine. And now back to our conversation with Anna Francis Goss, author of Heirloom Kitchen, heritage recipes and family stories from the tables of immigrant women. Now your mom's meatballs have sort of a cult following. Can you tell us what makes them so incredible? I have not yet made them. It's on my list. Good. I'm glad you will. So when you're Italian, you think your mom makes the best meatballs. Right. But I guess now I can say that my mom really does. (laughs) I've had enough non-Italians tell me. Right. So she makes them the way my grandmother did in Italy, which makes them so special to us. They're poached. They're not fried or baked, Uh which a lot of Calabrians do that. That's not something my grandmother made up. They just don't bake or fry them. They're poached. Sure. But because they're poached in sauce, they don't have to be so sturdy. And sometimes you eat a meatball and it tastes like a brick. And that's because it's packed with binder, breadcrumb, and too many eggs. My mom uses not that much egg and not that much breadcrumb. So when you are making them, they're very wet and you're like, is this going to work? But it does. Do not feel the need to add more breadcrumb. My mom used to yell at me when I did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the other thing she does that is also something I don't think typical, haven't seen it in other recipes, she adds her tomato sauce as one of the ingredients in the meatball. Into the mixture. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And I just think it makes them really delicate, really moist. And when you're eating them... Like my mom's way to judge her meatballs is like she'll put it on the plate, she'll pull it out, and then she literally like taps it with her fork and it just kind of breaks open. Yeah. She doesn't even have to really get into it. And I can't eat meatballs out because they're like softballs that I could throw in the wall. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I can't wait to try that recipe. So we're obviously showing cookbooks. You've worked on a number of cookbooks in addition to yours as a Mm -hmm. recipe tester. I'm curious what you think makes a good cookbook as a person who... Is well-versed in recipe testing. Yeah. Um, recipes at work. Yeah. And I think that sounds very obvious, but I've tried many recipes that don't work. Right. And I think that's really unfair because if you're buying my cookbook, you're already spending money on my cookbook and you don't have to. We have the World Wide Web, but you're buying my cookbook and then you're going out and you're buying the ingredients for my recipe and then you're allotting a certain amount of time in your life to make it. So the least I can do 
is set you up for success. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the most important thing. And I think sometimes when I was doing this, the women probably thought I was nuts because I called them like back three times. I'm like, wait, but when we did this, you did that. And why was it in this? And they're like, oh my God, just write what you want, lady. <laughs> right. No, no. I mean, they were very patient with me, but it was incredibly important for it to be exact and right. And you know what? You write a cookbook and unfortunately there can be little errors now and then, but we combed through and combed through because I really wanted them to be perfect. And if you can riff, that's fine, riff. Right. But at least if you say, okay, I'm a recipe tester, excuse me, I'm a recipe follower, I'm going to go this line by line and do it, the least I can do is make it work. And I think the other important thing is that you have to have recipes that people want to make. And again, sounds very obvious, but I want someone to look through my table of contents and not be able to decide what to make first. Because they're looking and they're like, oh my God, I want to make this. I want to make this. I want to make this. So that was another thing when I was talking to the children because they were helping me select the recipes that their moms were going to cook with me. Okay. Even when this was still a blog, I said, okay, maybe your mom makes the best macaroni with ketchup combo, (laughs) but I don't want that. I want the authentic recipes from the homeland that you love and that other people will recognize. Because even when this was just a blog, I wanted it to resonate with others. And because we go out to eat so much in the U.S., we've learned these recipes. I mean, it's just it's just so funny. Like, ask a four-year-old that doesn't know what hummus is. Right. I mean, an American four-year-old knows many of the recipes in my book. Yeah. Because their parents have brought them out to eat or they go to the grocery store. And it's funny. The Lebanese woman is like, we, you know, we used to have to travel to Brooklyn when my mother didn't make the, when didn't make the hummus. Now you can get it in 45 flavors. Yeah. And it's like, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's just so funny. Like you think about, I mean, I just saw chocolate hummus in the grocery store. Right. Which is a whole nother conversation. Yeah, exactly. Like. But no, but there's that availability. She said too, we had to, I love this quote. We had to switch pita bread for wonder bread when she got here. Yeah. Because you couldn't find pita bread. But we're not in that situation anymore. Right. And so I wanted recipes that people would recognize. And again, your mom and grandmother aren't making them anymore. Well, maybe you can find it in my book. Right. Are there cookbooks or cookbook authors who have been particularly influential to you over the course of your career? That's a really good question. I love Julia Child. I mean, I think you just, if you want to be a good cook, you should buy her book because it just teaches you how to cook. I really yeah. think it does. And it's so funny. And maybe this is, you know, um, but the food lab, just because I totally respect how he, again, the science of a recipe. Right. I find it fascinating. Like, And that's Kenji Lopez. Also. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Should have mentioned him. Yes. I admire him very much because he's like, I'm going to make the best stovetop mac and cheese you're going to have yeah. outside of craft. And he did it. Yeah, and I make right. that recipe all the time. Right. And just His crispy smashed potatoes are so one of good. my favorite things. Yes. yes. But it's because, and I, if I ever meet him, I just want to ask him like how many times he tests something because it fascinates me. I love yeah. serious seeds. I just, um, also rave tart. Yeah. I love that book too. But yeah. again, it's, I admire people that really treat a cookbook as a craft. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just throwing a bunch of recipes together and right. seeing what sticks. It's the fact that those recipes are tested and they work. Right. What impact do you hope your cookbook has? I know. That's such that's a... That's a big question. I know. A, I'm sorry to just throw that at you. <laughs> World domination. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Um, I want my I want my cookbook to be a big hug. I want you to open up my cookbook. Um, we have the recipes. We have everyone's story. 
and we have some beautiful ephemera in there. Um, pictures from the old country, passports, mementos that they brought over, things that meant things to them. There's a picture of every person in the book. Please mm-hmm. admire Andrew Scrivani's beautiful photography yeah, beautiful. because he knocked it out of the park for me. The time and energy that went into that, just the cover shot of my mother's hands. Yeah. Um, I just hope people open it up and it makes them smile. As simple and hokey as that sounds. Yeah. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we'd end with a game. We have some cards near you that have some different kitchen ingredients on them. So I pulled the names of a couple famous female immigrants okay. in our culture. Um, so I'm going to give you one of these names and you can draw from any of those stacks. You'll get an ingredient and then I want you to tell us what you would prepare for that person okay. if you're having them over for dinner. That's fun. Okay. So let's start with Madeleine Albright, who immigrated here from Czechoslovakia, Czech yes. Republic. Um, and that that's the hardest stack that you picked from. So you're like going all in right away. <laughs> Honey. Honey, okay. Uh, often flavor of the plants from which bees draw nectar. Yep, thank you. That is true with honey. Accurate. Um, what would I make for her? Should it be from her it native have to land? Be. No, it doesn't. Or could have I to wow be. her? You can wow her. Then I would make her um Nelly's baklava. It's not in the book. Mm. Maybe round two, but I just love it. It's sticky, it's sweet, it's nutty. Um and the honey is drizzled over. It's all over. It's all in. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it's there's just so much put on that it layers through every okay. every flake of phyllo. So yes, that's what you're getting, Madeline. Okay. I'm sure she'd love it. How about <laughs> Gloria Estefan, who immigrated from Cuba? What are we what are you serving for her when she comes to your house for dinner? Um tempeh. Really? Tempeh. Oh no. It's a dense chewy meat alternative made from soy. You know what I'm gonna do with the tempeh? I'm gonna take Angela's Cuban black beans. And I'm going to make it with tempeh. Okay. And I'm going to wow Gloria that she's going to get authentic Cuban black beans. Yeah. Made out of tempeh. Yeah. I think she would love it. Yeah. Um, how about Padma Lakshmi, who immigrated from India? Um, asparagus. Okay. Well, you know what? I think this would be good for her because she's incredibly fit. I know she's works out. So maybe just really simple steamed asparagus, maybe like a um, basil, olive oil, drizzled on top, roasted. She'll love it. Perfect. Simple, delicious. Okay, last one. Ariana Huffington, who immigrated from Greece, is coming to your house for dinner tonight. What will you serve her? Carrots. Carrots. Oh, you know what people are doing now that I really love and I did a recipe? So I'll roast some carrots for her and then I'm going to drizzle it with a yogurt-based sauce. Okay. And then like roasted nuts on top. It's going to be really delicious. And the yogurt... You know, because there's a lot of like dairy and yogurt and Greek. Maybe she'll enjoy that. Yeah. All right. Well, those are some great dinner parties you're going to be having. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Anna. This was so much fun. Thank you. It really was. And let's head now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm fine. Thanks. Great. So we just sat down with Anna Frances Gass to talk about her cookbook, Heirloom Kitchen. And I'm hoping you have some wisdom to share with us. Sure. It's a lovely book and yeah. one of several that have come out recently about immigrant cuisines. Right. Uh, she starts out with her own mother and her uh, recipes for Italian cooking. Uh-huh. Um, she started a blog about it and then went to her friend's kitchens, or her, excuse me, her friend's mother's kitchens right. to learn what they were cooking uh, from their immigrant cuisines. And uh, it's a beautiful look at 
all different kinds of cuisines. You know, we have so many people coming here from all different countries and it's been such a fight and, and such a, uh, such a stress when we read about it in the papers. Sure. But in fact, what it's bringing in is this beautiful mix of foods that bring us all together. Yeah. And that's the idea behind her book and the idea behind like the La Cocina um, book. And right. the, the there's one called the Immigrant Cookbook. There are also several that are coming out of the Middle East now, uh, especially Syria, that are uh, focused on immigrant foods and uh, what they're bringing here. And we're lucky to have them. Yeah, absolutely. We are. And these beautiful cuisines, beautiful and delicious cuisines. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of, as you noted, recent trend of some of these cookbooks that focus sort of on the broader immigrant culinary experience, pulling in cuisines from across the world. Yeah. But we've also seen so many wonderful cookbooks from immigrants themselves just celebrating their own cuisine. I mean, one of the first yeah. ever guests we had on Salt and Spine was James Siaba, who wrote Hawker Fair, right. about his sort of Lao Thai heritage. Mm-hmm. And it's not really um, an immigrant-forward cookbook if you're looking at the cover. right? There's a subtle, I think, in the subtitle but it's sort of his personal story. And so we've seen a lot of those really personal immigration stories too, told through food. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is, which is really the, the beautiful part of it. Right. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, lying in bed and wondering if in a while we're going to start to see some foods from, from Central America uh-huh. and how they're blended with Mexican because uh-huh. so many of them are ending up staying in Mexico, uh, either while they're waiting to come over the border or just because they're finding that it's kind of a great place to live. Sure. And I was thinking about those foods folding into each other and how that's going to be a really interesting hybrid cuisine. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Celia. Anytime. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Heirloom Kitchen, Gina's Arancini Rice Balls and Tina's Chinese New Year Dumplings. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.